everybody. It has been a while. Uh, it's 2021, New Year. And I think all of us know that as much as we want to lean into optimism and radical hope, that we are still in the midst and the remnants of a lot of crisis and rupture. I'm really, really excited and grateful to kick off this year's podcast with Dorica Purnell. Thank you again for the invitation. You are someone whose work I've been following for a little minute. And I, th- the, I think the first time I shared any type of space with you and it was virtual was in the Black Reconstruction course. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, yes. Um, and you know, something I'm really excited to get into conversation with you is that this energetic shift of the new year, right? Like where we always respond to it and we want to be, you know, in gratitude and we want to be in hope, especially in a year where so many millions of people really feel excited and almost relieved that there's a new administration, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically the Biden-Harris administration. And folks feel really tied and attached to how historic it is, right? We know it's historic. And I want to quote um, Phil Agnew here that just because things are historic doesn't always mean that they're good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, feel more. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you're orienting yourself towards this new year. It's 2021. We're still in a global pandemic. We mm-hmm. do have a new administration. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in many ways, the material conditions of a lot of folks hasn't really shifted or has actually maybe worsened. So how are you making sense of this new year? Like what's top of line for you? Wow. Um, thank you again for having having me on. I'm trying to, I guess I'm still gathering my bearings. It's February 11th. I can't believe that it's already February, let alone the 11th, <laughs> 11 days in. So this year does not care about time. Uh, I think that so I, I, I'm feeling a lot of different things. So one, most of my days, I've been very fortunate to start off this year doing a lot of writing and reflecting about, you know, where I've been politically in the last five to seven years. And just grateful, just so, so grateful of being surrounded by people who have pushed me politically, you know, have pushed my politics, who have pushed me to think more imaginatively and more beautifully and more boldly about the world. And as the inauguration was happening on January 20th, I thought about in in 2012 or 2013, January, how I was at President Obama's inauguration, like crying and so grateful <laughs> and just so thankful that I saved up my little money and flew from Kansas City <laughs> to Washington, D.C. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is it. It was a good time. It was a good time it to be alive good. and young. Lambo <laughs> and Morehouse, you know, it was it, it was it was a great time. And so I just think about that time where I was doing voter registration and throwing get out to vote rallies and knocking on doors, getting people excited about, you know, President Barack Obama. And then and you know, last year, not really sure if I was gonna vote, like not really sure if I was if I could make the commitment to check a box for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And and being in that moment precisely because of what I know that my ancestors fought and died for. And it's not simply that people could vote, it was so that people could be free. 
right? Depending on which ancestors you count, because ancestors want a lot of things, right? And so, yeah. you know, I know we use them for everything that we want, like, yeah, but um, I just have been fortunate to think about how much I have moved thanks to the work of like Dream Defenders and people in BYP 100 and so many people I don't even like know their names, but I know that when we were in the streets, when we were organizing, the kind of demands that we were putting against the state, the kind of demands we were making of ourselves and to each other, I just never would have fathomed that in 2021, so many of us would be so deeply critical of you know, representation in politics mm. will be so deeply critical of police in the way that we are, that we will be so excited about anti-capitalism and, and socialist politics that I just didn't even know to know that 10 years ago. And so I feel interestingly very, very grateful and um, excited to see what's in store. Yes, I love that. And I love I love the recognition and the reckoning with just like the evolution so many of us have had to just grapple with and embody, right? Like what it means to be disappointed by representation and what it means like to challenge beyond identity politics, right? Which is mm -hmm. which is a hot take in and out of itself in this moment, right? Where identity is sort of taking precedent, right? To ideology, to sort of what you're actually putting forth, um, which, which I think has been one of the really strategic and like sticky parts of this moment, right? Like we know why the the democratic establishment chose someone like Joe Biden. And then also most mm -hmm. importantly in this context, Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. And we're also grounded in like a, a sober assessment that, you know, Kamala ain't on no liberation <laughs> shit, right? Yes, 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 yes. You know, you you lifted up um, the names of some comrades, right? Folks at Dream Defenders, folks at BYP 100, and there's so many others, right? Um, I was just reading your um, cover story for Teen Vogue with um, Corey Bush, which was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and there's a piece in the article where, where that sort of dynamic is also acknowledged, right? Like how folks on the ground, how folks on the ground that are rooted in either a Marxist tradition, a black radical tradition, a socialist and anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist tradition are actually like pushing the bounds of what we even normalize. And of course, then what we dare to dream of. I've also been thinking a lot of, you know, here we are like over six months after the uprisings in the summer, after sort of like the mainstream moment of abolition, things that a lot of us have been sort of contending with for some time, kind of mm -hmm. in our closed doors and the meetings and, you know, organizer stuff. Um, on the low. On the low. Yes. <laughs> I knew I could not talk about evolution publicly in my job. <laughs> and now everyone's like, abolish, abolish, abolish. So yes, on the low. Yeah. Tell me how you, how are you processing all of that? Like, there, there's so much to unpack there, but how are you processing like such a quick pivot? And we know that the pivot doesn't always translate to like actual transformation, yeah. but at least the pivot on one realm. Yes, I think that's a good question. I think that I actually wonder how people like Miriam Kaba and Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Rachel Herzing, how some of those people are processing this pivot. 
you know, because they've had critiques of prison since literally like the 70s, right? right. Thinking about George Jackson's writings, right? There's so these robust critiques of the carceral state and the prison industrial complex are 40, 50 years old. And then in 2020, boom, right? There's this, it's it's a pivot where now defunding the police has entered into a public consciousness in a way that I think is very exciting because now um, so much of what has been considered like fringe politics is now something that that's on people's policy demands and what they're going to their city council meetings and demanding that they think and know that it's possible. And I think one reason is because in 2014, when people were demanding police reform and they got it, they mm. quickly saw its failures with more black cops, more community policing, more women cops, um, with body cameras, with coffee with the cop, books. Uh, what's 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 my favorite one? What's the one in St. Louis? Books and badges programs. Oh no! You know, like, and so I think people are like, okay, you know, reform, 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 and then a thousand people kept dying. Mm-hmm. A thousand people are being killed, many more harassed, many more, you know, jailed. None of the conditions change. And so watching the evolution from reform the police, body cameras, consent decrees, DOJ investigations, send those killer cops to jail to watch hearing people saying, shrink the budgets, do hiring freezes. Um, don't build any more cop academies, you know, do alternative recruitment so that poor kids of color don't have to become cops if they want to make a decent life for their families, right? So I think it's been quite remarkable and I'm excited because I think many of the people who've been studying and struggling around abolition, even recently, as recently as I have, I've only come to the policy of abolition since like 2015, 16. It's like I was still like reading and studying and asking, is this real? Is this possible? Is this, can we do this right now? Am I going to see? Am I going to taste it? And so it's, it's, um, yeah, I think it's exciting now. I think that one thing that we're going to have to figure out is where is it going to be co-opted? Where is it going to be taken? And we're going to see that spin on it. You know, are people saying to fund the police because it's libertarian? Are people saying, oh yeah, let's abolish the police and then rebuild the police? Are people saying, let's do this abolition thing without questioning capitalism? Because mm-hmm. I'm not sure that we can have abolition without also attempting to abolish capitalism. Um, and so, yeah, I, it's, I've heard the little asterisk at the end of abolition, abolish police as we know it. It's, so it's, <laughs> I, I'm very, very curious of what people are going to do and put their spin on it um, in order to preserve you know, empire. I'm also very curious about some people in our movements who I think assume, I at least I assume that we shared a lot of the same politics or we had a lot of the same ideas and visions. And now I'm seeing us become polarized around the purpose and function of the state. So mm-hmm. I'm very curious about how that's eventually going to manifest. I think polarization can be a good thing because it can clarify like what some of us think we, we should be fighting for and where we're aligned and where we depart. But it's I am finding out new and more exciting problems. And I think that we're going to build capacity to face them. Yes. Mm, yes. Ooh, there's so much there. I think the first thing I want to tease out, because I'm like, mm-mm-mm. <laughs> there's something about, we well, we know why, right? There, There's something about the empire of the United States that has been so, so strategic and so creative at 
suppressing class consciousness and like Mm -hmm. really cutting through sort of class solidarity in this country, especially class solidarity that is multiracial, that is cross-cultural, right? All the things. Um, We know that, which is also funny that the Fred Hampton movie is coming out this week. Oh, yes. We're going to see what what they're going to spin on that, how they're going to totally erase or minimize that that sort of understanding and posture. Mm -hmm. But how are you how are you sort of like making sense or maybe even navigating like this huge popularization of abolition right and 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 how you said it right abolition and all the things but we're not seeing in the same way in the same force sort of anti-capitalism a questioning of the sort of political economy that we operate under mm-hmm. and even just the basic mm-hmm. rationale of it like that is just not happening in unison, right? Which is expected. But yeah, I think even to your point around movement, like I, you know, I think I still hear like a lot of our folks be like, you know, like still embracing like entrepreneurship and still being like, we yeah. just got to get our bag and being like, wait, <laughs> what are we really talking about here? So yeah, how are you, think- how are you making sense of all of that? Well, I think it, de- I think it depends on the group, right? It, it depends on the group. It, it, if it's, I, I don't take a like one size fits all approach in how I figure out how to have these conversations. It's why I have like 17 jobs, right? It's it's like <laughs> one reason why I organize, another reason why I teach, another reason why I'm in a classroom. I'm always I'm in another Black Reconstruction class this this like spring. So I'm I'm in I'm a student, I'm a lawyer, and in each of those fields, I try to figure out what makes the most amount of sense to push the conversation further to the left and introduce radical politics to people that I'm struggling with. And so uh, I think part of it is meeting people where they are and not making them feel bad for not knowing that they should be radical. It's, I think there is that. I think that I've interestingly felt really frustrated with some of the conversations around pop culture with um, people on the left who are just like, here we go, you know, what they about to do, what they about to do, instead of being like, okay, we know that this movie, because it's a Hollywood production, there's going to be a chance that they are not going to talk about communism, mm-hmm. probably not going to talk about socialism, right? Um, so how can we capture millions of Black people who are going to be excited about this movie, who's going to see Fred Hampton for the first time, learning him for the first time, and use that to push them further to the left rather than just mostly complain about the absence of revolutionary politics. How can we start building like, oh, here's like a Fred Hampton starter kit, right? How can we <laughs> actually exploit these moments in pop culture to push people further to the left? And what's so beautiful is that, that one of my favorite speeches by Fred Hampton, actually, he's talking about when cops are stopping black people who are leaving the free breakfast programs and they're like, you know, um, you like socialism? And they're like, no, we don't know what that is. Like, you like communism? And they was like, y'all, we scared of communism. We don't know what that is. And the cop was like, nigga, y'all go to that free breakfast program. That's socialism, that's communism. (laughs) And the black people are like, you better not touch that program because I'm going to shoot you in your face. Don't get your hand off my program. And so what they were doing was using um, 
mutual aid and socialist politics to practice and project an alternative vision of the world they wanted to show black people that socialism that communism was possible that the state is capable of doing something like that without being so violent right and so they it's it's fascinating that they were doing that with not always even being explicit mm -hmm. about what we were doing as being radical right and so sometimes I'm just like, okay, how can we push this agenda? Sometimes it should be explicitly abolitionist, sometimes maybe more subtly, right? How are we pushing this agenda and making sure that the politics, what we're practicing is, is socialistic? Maybe every audience doesn't need to hear the word socialism yet. Like we need to push them, but maybe not yet. And so how do we move out of a space where we're primarily communicating to people through 140 characters and just like, y'all not woke, y'all not here, y'all don't feel me. And then it's like, well, how do we, um, yeah, how do we like push people? And so I I, I want to know how to do that. I'm, I'm always excited when I see people doing that. So I love the Dream Defenders so much because I think that they have a very interesting balance of having a read on culture. Mm -hmm. So people are just like, oh, I didn't even know I was supposed to be an abolitionist. I didn't even know what abolition was. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 it's cool, bro. It's cool, it's cool, it's cool. Like, let's figure this out together without making people just, you know, like shrink. And so I, I want people to feel beautiful and excited about the politics that we share and not like intimidate it. Yep. No, not intimidate it. I don't even know if that answered your question, but that's kind no, of something. I I'm so appreciative of you saying that and I'm and I'm longing for more organizers to be sort of like orienting themselves in that way. Cause even, you know, at Power You here in Miami, we've been thinking like, all right, we're gonna watch this shit with our young people and then hit them with Hit them with the sauce, right? Exactly. Everything that's missing. Yes. Get yes. excited, you know, because there, you know, there is something so powerful about like artistry and and like creative and cultural production that just like puts you in a sensory experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is hard to mimic the excitement of a film, some you know, of such a historic moment in a popular education workshop. Like, really, you know, that's just where we at. So I'm so, uh, I feel really affirmed in, in you saying that because I'm like, you know, we know what it's going to be is Hollywood. Like, yes. we got to stop expecting. It's through the lens, <laughs> the eyes of the informant. It's literally called yeah. Judas. Like, so it's through the eyes of the informant. But I think about when I was a kid and I saw Malcolm X and it wasn't until I became an adult and I read the book and I was like, half that movie is wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> half that movie is just like not even accurate. But watching Malcolm X as a kid, what I think it did was it gave me um, like a sample of like what I something I could be interested in. And then I had to go and like, you know, study and learn actual politics of, of um, Brother X. But yeah, it's like, how can we use this to push it exactly as you said with the popular education? Yeah. Yep. 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 It is a it is a, a bit of a wild time and something I'm really um, grateful that you kind of stand pretty strongly on at least you know on so on the social platforms is like um you're constantly just challenging like how easy it is to just embrace an end like start and end at just the identity politics right like I think mm -hmm. at one point you had something like I'm rooting for everybody resisting oppression resisting oppression right <laughs> and I'm like it's that <laughs> and you know I mean I'm sure you know this especially with like your platform and visibility that a lot of folks don't want to hear that. A lot of folks are like, yeah, no, 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 no. Actually, it's just, mm -mm, don't give me none of that. 
<sighs> yeah, that one's a hard one, yeah. but we working through it. I'm like, <laughs> we working through it. I'm hopeful. I really am. But you know, yeah. you you're also working on a lot of new projects. I know that you've probably slowed down a little bit in the last couple of months. I'm sure the summer of 2020, everybody wanted to talk to you. Everybody wanted to hear like abolitionist perspective from a lawyer, from an organizer, like all the things. Um, but I'm curious, like right now, what is like really feeding your soul? What is, what are the projects you really just want to put more energy into and like more love and life into? Wow. So, wow. I was really actually excited about the everybody, like we for everyone resisting oppression. We can, I think that is a much fuller conversation that we should, we should work through. Cause I think it actually speaks to something you said earlier about, um, class Mm. And how how rooting for everyone black just obscures the class differences among black people who are able to move in a certain space and, and other people, right? And so, I mean, I know this. I remember as soon as I went to Harvard, as soon as I got into Harvard, mm -hmm. so much shifted for me. I was like, oh, I'm wearing my sweatshirt every time I go to the airport. It's like, period. All my black aunties who work in TSA. Like, I'm like, you know, so it's just like you doing it. So proud of you because I think it's what people expect, what you've overcome. But at the same time, like, exactly what you started with at the beginning, the material conditions of so many people have not changed they are worse, you know, and having a woman of color as vice president or as CEO or in NFL halftime shows, that's not going to change that. It's, it's not going to change that. Right. And so they're going to be rooting for everyone that's black with empty bellies. Like that's what they're doing. Like that's what we're doing. So we got to figure out how to get people's bellies full. Mm -hmm. Um Yes, but what projects? So actually, right now I'm finishing my first book, which is Ooh. so scary, <laughs> so so scary because this is the longest thing I've ever written, and it's it's I didn't want to write another book about police that was just about violence. Like I wanted to write a, about the history of police from the perspective of resistance, not freedom, mm. right? So I try to talk about decolonization and marunage and the raids mm. and the Billions and just people the running away all of it and so I, I'm really trying to draw on that history and it's exciting and it's painful and there's continuities and discontinuities and I'm just I'm, I've been enjoying the research much more than I've been enjoying the writing because I'm just learning so much about what people did to stay free to yeah. get free to stay free so that's been a labor of love, like trying to meet <laughs> deadlines and hold yourself accountable, hold myself accountable, and then be like, who's gonna read this? <laughs> and then be like, ah, oh, okay, Derek, like you just gotta get it done. And then fighting with my six-year-old, cause he's just like, why would you write this book if I can't read it? And I was just mm. like, bro, I'm sorry. Like you gotta get the next one. Um, <laughs> that's been funny fighting with my child. What else? Oh, I am this. I haven't actually even talked about this publicly yet, but I'm I'm working on a museum. I'm, I'm a museum, kind of, I guess. -ish. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm building a museum that's 
um, for justice and contemporary activism. Yeah. Because I want a museum where people can go in and learn about multiracial, radical, Black-led movements. Period. Like, I'm out of the story being from slavery to mass incarceration. I want a story that's from freedom to abolition. Mm. And with the same spirit of that book, just trying to invert that logic. And so this is something I've been working on now for like seven months, seven months. And you know, we'll see where it goes. It takes a lot of work to do a museum. I left my job to so I can do it full time, and it's scary. It's a risk, but um, I think it. I think it can help. I think it can help us get free. Yes, I love that. I love. I love like just hearing you kind of like where where your heart and mind is at, right? Because it is exactly that. Like we hear the same stories all the time. I've been, I feel like I've been nerding out a little bit, like trying to learn about maroon folks here with indigenous mm -hmm. folks here mm -hmm. um, in the Everglades, right? Like how they were sort of living together, resisting together. And it's just, yeah. and it's a story that's, com you know, it's, it's completely erased and it's strategically erased. And now I feel like I'm just like, I feel like a whole new portal just opened for me to really yes. understand. I'm like, yo, people were living in the swamps. Like that is tough. And we're actually building and like exchanging medicine and we're like growing and actually like even building families together. Like it just blows yeah. my mind. It, I don't know, for me, I'm like, you know, sometimes it's the, the reality of our of our system is so it wears you down so much that mm -hmm. we know what it does to imagination and dreamy like the dreaminess but something about there's something so powerful about being able to go back to history and mm -hmm. like we're not totally reinventing the wheel like our folks have been here and have been experimenting and it's just kind of like getting back in touch with that feels so powerful and so magical Wow, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Like exactly it. Um when oh my gosh, when what was this? I guess two or three years ago, I um I picked up this textbook by Errol Lewis and Robin D. G. Kelly. And in this text textbook, there was this timeline. And I started reading the timeline and I got to a section where it was like 1617. And it said that in 1617, um, the first free settlement of Black people in North America was in 1617. And I was just like, wow. So wait, there's been all this debate and hype around 1619. And two years before, people were already living here free. And then I started reading more stories like, so wait, so wait, so wait. A hundred years before 1619, you know, people were living here free. As soon as the first ship came, people were resisting. Mm -hmm. We're like fighting back. We're forging communities. Everything you just said. And I was just like, wow. So what does 1619 get us that a hundred years of resistance doesn't? Mm -hmm. Like, why would we focus so much on 1619? when people literally were fighting and winning and building all of this love and struggle. And I don't want to romanticize it, but I, it felt like uh, more than a hundred years of history was just given to me. And I was like, oh, that's my past. My past does not start with 1619. I don't have to fight over 1776 or 1619. It's 
it's it's literally hundreds of years before that, right? Mm. And so I I am so grateful for the gift of history. Just yeah. so grateful, just so grateful. Because as like I said, Sadia Hartman says in her book, lose lose your mother generations. Like you get to choose your past. As much as it's given to you, you also get to choose it. And the past I choose is with freedom and resistance and rebellion, not just not just slavery. Yes. Yes. Ooh. And they're all they're all heavy hitters and they're all they all sort of invite us to imagine more. You know, I think of freedom dreams specifically oh, like the Bible. Yeah, everyone remembers where they were at the first time they read Freedom Dreams. It's just like one of those books and I'm like, "Wait, so you're telling me that folks here were on, like straight up studying like Che Guevara and were straight up studying like what Mao was up to?" All yeah. over China to get inspired and you know do breakfast programs over here to like you know it's now it's wild that you know here we are just maybe 16 years like 50 60 years later from kind of like that that really hype moment where like there's just revolution in the air globally mm -hmm. like it's just palpable and you can taste it and you can feel it that here we are that there's so much resistance even in our movement even in our community to like be like, oh, I, I don't have to give a fuck about what's happening in the rest of the world. You know, like, mm -hmm. this is our struggle here. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, it, it feels very, yeah, it feels so, like, imperialistic to be like, yo, we are connected to all these folks all over the world. Yeah. Like, even if we wanted to deny it. And mm -hmm. so many of our revolutionary heroes have been knowing that. You know, sometimes I even, like, mm -hmm. hear a little bit of, like, pushback from, from comrades and folks that you know, I'm in relationship or community with that they're like, straight up, all that leftist shit, the marks, the the white Europeans, I don't want to read none of it. And I'm like, okay, okay. So who are like your favorites? You know, it's like Asada, yeah. Malcolm, you know, Fred Hampton, you know, the classic. You don't have to go to yeah. yeah. But I'm like, you know, we we can actually just like we have to recognize that like a lot of our predecessors have actually been studying this and then yeah. contextualizing it and drawing upon it and using it as a bouncing board. Like it doesn't start and end there. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely curious like how we can all just embody a little bit more humility, especially yeah. as like we try to we're like aspiring revolutionaries. Like that mm -hmm. word we use, you know, that's a word that like has been used a lot lately. Like everybody's a revolutionary now. I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> um, we want that. And, you know, there's a lot involved with that. Um, but no, thank you for sharing that. Like I definitely, like yeah, I feel it in my body. I'm like, mm, it's like the butterflies. It's like, yes, it feels warm. It feels good. You know, after no, this. It's so after important. Yeah. The international stuff is so, so, so important. I mean. I, I, yeah, it's yeah. You're right. It, we have to have a stake in what happens abroad if we're gonna get free. You know, so much of the violence here is exported to other places. Mm -hmm. You know, it's exported, and then what's that violence is then practiced and then brought back here. It's you know, imperialism is in solidarity. <laughs> it's in solidarity. Like no, I'm like no, no, no. I'm like don't even say it too loud because then it'll become like it'll be it'll be the next hot. <laughs> take i'm like no 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 <laughs> nope not here <laughs> yeah yes. so yes it's so so and so important that we have that stake when i remember reading freedom dreams when he talks about um robin talks about paul robinson 
And part of his definition of self-determination involved an international stake in pursuing freedom and justice for people across the world. Mm. You know, it's, it's, yes, yes, it's, we have to have that. Yes. Ooh, I guess after sort of like just wrapping up and maybe thinking a little bit in hindsight of 2020, right? Like a year of like collapse, rupture, rebuilding, questioning, answering, demanding, all of the things in between. What are what are like the what are like the main lessons you're really taking with you that are like you're you're holding close to your heart? And it doesn't have to even be, you know, the political stuff, just in general. Well, what am I taking from last year? I think last year in March, yeah, last March, all of my sisters moved in with me from St. Louis. They all came here and my nephew. So there's me, my three sisters, the youngest one just turned 20, and then my nephew, then my two kids. And I've been in such an interesting space because it's been such a hard year, like lots of like personal stuff, family stuff, global stuff, movement stuff. It's been a whirlwind. And I also have felt so, so grateful that every time it's a birthday in this house, it's actually a little party. Like it's, <laughs> it's a little party. And I just have also been meditating on Arundhati Roy when she says, you know, the pandemic is a portal. Yes. And it's it's it resonates with Naomi Klein talks about shock doctrine that when there are these crises, there's there are also moments of opportunity for us to decide to like live better and to like change. And I think as much as that is true societally, you know, with this portal or shock doctrine that, you know, the government can make a set of decisions that make lives easier, alleviate suffering. I also have been thinking about what those smaller portals look like for us, like in our homes and our families, and our relationships. Um, when, when someone um, um, in Aid to Abolition, Kay, said that, with all of the Zoom, you know, lots of people who are disabled, who have disabilities, have been able to participate more in conversations and in talks and in events because they're virtual. It doesn't require a lot of travel. And I was just like, oh, wow, I didn't even think to think about something like that. So I think what I'm taking away is that the idea of like a, a silver lining is just completely insufficient. It doesn't speak to the magnitude of the loss and suffering mm-hmm. of millions of people worldwide, you know, but I, I want to think more about, okay, what can we learn from this moment that we can continue to take with us generally that, um, that can bring us joy, that can alleviate suffering, that brings us closer to our families for some of us, even if it's under these conditions, like what kinds of relationships, what kinds of, yeah, what kinds of relationships have been forged internally with our neighbors? I, I know my neighbor, know I'm like, you need anything from the store? Like what kinds of practices of care can we continue that I think has made us smaller? Because now it kind of confined to your house or to your block. You know, it's, I'm thinking about, Adrian Marie Brown's work or the bogs is like we have been forced in some ways to kind of be more local to be smaller so how do we keep that like how do we keep that up and when all of the orders and everything is lifted we don't immediately rush back into the streets and rush back to return to the way we were because I think we can do better yep 
I know we can do better. We know it. I also really appreciate you mentioning this piece of like, you know, yes, we know disaster capitalism, always like these ruptures and these moments and these yeah. holes, yes, come with opportunity. And I always try to ground myself in that, um, you know, and kind of like what we decide to do now is going to determine kind of like what what really goes down. But I also feel like there's been a little bit of romanticizing of even like mutual aid altogether yeah. this past year, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember having a conversation with one of the youth members, um, yeah, some months back, right? And they were just really excited about mutual aid and all the mutual aid projects, you know, as we should be. And yeah. then, you know, but then I kind of offered, I was like, and like, we should not romanticize that, like, yes, poor folks and working folks, like, we're doing the absolute most to just help each other as we always do when mm -hmm. the state is just sitting on its ass on the billions yeah. and trillions and just, like, quite literally just holding holding those resources hostage from us. Like, you know, I really don't want folks to lose sense of kind of, like, the greater picture beyond just, like, mutual aid projects that are important, serve a role, And I don't think that can actually get to a scale that we actually feel like, okay, we actually can just like be independent of the state. We don't need that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also the state be doing shit on our, like on our name, you know, like it's like, it's our money, yes. it's our public money, it's our taxpayer money, it's our neighborhoods, it's our schools, it's our parks. Like it is literally, you know, land that the, that is stolen. It's all the things. So yeah curious like how you are sort of interpreting this like moment of like you know so many people had never heard of what mutual aid was right before 2020 and now yeah, it's, so excited it's so interesting it's so interesting that you said that because i was listening to this panel i guess last weekend and it was with marbray who's over law for black lives robin kelly was on it an organizer from Mihente and Dean Spade. And Dean Spade was talking about the new book, Mutual Aid, which came out, I think, late last year. And, and hearing how Dean articulated mutual aid, I was excited. I bought the book. I already started you know, reading. But what I couldn't quite sense, and I asked the question, and I was just like, you know, I think that lots of organizations, you know, engage in mutual aid regularly. And those organizations I know who engage in mutual aid have different relationships to the state. And sometimes I'm not always sure where, you know, with people, especially people who are very excited about mutual aid, what are the different camps and how they relate to the state? Or do they think that, okay, we should just do mutual aid because this is all we have. We actually can't rely on the state. There, we, we don't sense any obligation to it. Or, you know, we demand a socialist state. We are doing mutual aid because of the failures of the state, because of the genocide and dispossession and displacement and incarceration. And um, the, because the state serves right now, at least, to protect the interests of capitalism, what's, what's the relationship between anti-capitalist, pro-socialist state organizing and mutual aid projects? And Dean said, it just kind of depends on where you're organizing. And I think Dean, at least I hope I'm getting this right, said that, you know, they don't believe that the state is going to become this socialist project that people are organizing towards. And, you know, you know, instead of organizing for that, they choose to, you know, do mutual aid. And 
Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure. I just asked that question last week. I think that it's very important to organize against the state within the state um, for lots of reasons. One is because yeah, the state should have an obligation as it's currently constituted to take care of the people who live in the borders that it artificially constructs. I think that's important. The state also does a lot of violence. And I don't think that it should be left off the hook for that violence. And I don't I think mutual is important because it builds within people a responsibility and a practice and an ethic of taking care of each other. And that's existed before the state, right? And so I try to talk about that in the book with Marunaj and mutual aid. But also, I think what I'm like realizing when I'm writing about in the, in the chapter I worked on last week is that the state also inspires people to be violent. It, it like people mimic the violent behaviors of the state. And so when we go to war, homicides increase, for example, and we're perpetually at war. You know, when when there are laws that are passed that remove, you know, um, funding for abortion or closed clinics, there's more violence against people who are women and gender not conforming because your status in, in, in society is being reduced and that makes you more vulnerable to violence, right? So, so when those things happen and we don't organize against them, then we also inspire, you know, people into personal harm. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think the state absolutely has to be on the table for people who are interested in abolition and mutual aid and decolonization and repatriation and all of these projects, right? I, I think we have to engage it. So, and I'm still learning. I can be pushed, but I'm still learning. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I feel you. I'm like, also, I'm like, you know, I don't have any like so super sophisticated answer, but I was like something. Yeah. I, just, I really resonate. Like I, even in, in how I'm trying to do my popular education around abolition, I'm trying to connect it to austerity too. Right. Like mm -hmm. these two things are working hand in hand, like abolition and this struggle is not just about like the cages, the chains, the pigs, yeah. like that's just like what's on the tip of the iceberg and what we can see, what we can name and what's like the most grotesque manifestation of it. But I'm like, what the fuck is this hostile housing market that like is displacing everybody? Yeah. What is the privatization of all these schools and the whole charter bullshit and all these things? What is, you know, the climate, like all these things, the decimating mm -hmm. of the social safety net that like we quite frankly don't really have if, if mm -hmm. 2020 taught us anything. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think like in the larger context of abolition right now, like that's not as sexy. Right. And I think it's, of course, tied to, you know, capitalism is not the is not the thing we want to talk about too much. But. Yeah, that's something I'm I'm grappling with and trying to like really study and understand more sharply because I'm like, at so as long, and that's why we've seen like between the Dems and the Republicans, we kind of just end up in the same pickle because I'm like, they're yeah. both committed to neoliberal austerity yeah. and destroying like the public sector, you know, mm -hmm. and all the things that mm -hmm. exist within it. So I'm like, how do we expand the conversation of like what abolition's proposing, what it's really like forcing us to reckon with? and sort of challenge so yeah I mean my and my own politic is like you know I'm I truly believe I'm like we either either we make a decision that you know this state is irreparable and there's just no you know there's nothing and then that's where it is or I think to your point it's like the state has to be hold, held accountable you know mm -hmm. if you're going to be using you know if Jeff Bezos doesn't have any sort of accountability and working folks have to fund wars that bomb 
poor people across the globe, then I think we got some shit to talk about, you know, like, it's just like, come on now. So that's how I feel, but that's my own politics. So yeah, no, I I really appreciate what you, what you sort of offered. Cause I'm like, yeah, it's like, they're murky waters, right? It's not, it's Mm -hmm. not that simple to be like, oh, this, that, but yeah, the mutual aid piece has been really interesting. And I do think what it really offers us is like, the ability to transform and sort of the service of the work, you know, like shift the way in which we relate to one another, sort of like reorient ourselves around like, what does it mean to build even at a small scale, like, you know, maintaining the community fridges or like bail funds and all of these things. Mm -hmm. But even I'll even use the bail funds for an example, for as an example, down here in Miami, we were, we've been running one for the past two years. And you realize like there is there is something unsustainable about this, right? Like we cannot compete. (laughs) Like this is just, this could be temporary. And I would never say that, you know, oh, it was a waste of time or any of that. No, it's, it's really like what allowed us to embody abolition, what allowed us to like become serious and disciplined about learning about the state, learning around, like how do these court hearings go down? What is a, you know, what is the DOJ? Like, what What does a district attorney do? Like, what do these people do? Like, it really sharpened us. And mm-hmm. once you're in practice, it becomes very obvious, like, oh, we can't keep up. Like, even if you fundraise and even if you have, yeah. like, a solid group of organizers and volunteers, you can't keep up. And then it very quickly becomes, like, oh, we actually need to have, at least in my experience, I'm just speaking from my experience, like, oh, we actually need to be moving a decarceral campaign forward, mm-hmm. like in conjunction that is also moving quickly, ideally quicker, right? Cause it's yes. like, there's no way, there's just no way. Like it's, we're bailing folks out and it's just refilling itself up even, it's, yes. it's beefing itself up even quicker. Yeah, cause now what, at least what's happened in St. Louis is that the, um, the judges would now set bail because they're just like, oh, well the bail project is gonna post your bail anyway. So let's set bail. And it's just like, well, we actually have completely moved from this idea that you set bail in very particular circumstances. And so now the what the bail fund movement, the bail fund industrial complex it, that it's become serious. You know, it's, it's really important because we should absolutely get people out of jail and watching all the bail funds just manifest in the aftermath of the Ferguson uprising. It's just been like, oh, funders are really excited about this because it's a thing that you can do, that you can measure. We can say, oh, we bailed out this many people this year and see this is working. It's it's It has that kind of return on it, mm-hmm. right? And so I agree with you. How do we have other sorts of decarceral strategies to reduce the capacity of jails and cities and and police in cities and how do we do that because just cycling people in and out it's good because people will be able to go home to their kids but long term the courts are just going to adjust they're going to you're not going to exhaust the courts like you're not you're not going to do that and so I have been actually yearning to think more broadly about the bell fund industrial complex that has been birthed uh, partially to philanthropy and it's 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 yeah it has to be connected to decarceral a broader decarceral strategy you're 110 percent on the money with that yeah and it, it's it, at least in my case and like our case here it's not it's not like a it's one of those lessons that don't feel good right like mm-hmm. and it's another lesson that you know i think i haven't even really said this too publicly until now where 
it's hard to offer like good faith critique to even projects that like you might have started and you are like deeply invested in and being like, hey, y'all, this is actually what we learned and this is actually what we've gotten wrong. And I always I always think back to this resource that critical resistance has where they're like, it's like an abolitionist um, sort of chart. And it asks, essentially, oh, yeah. I love it because it's like, yeah, yes, you know, it's like, is it essentially what it's asking or tasking us to do in our analysis? Is like, is this action starving the beast of the carceral state? And, you know, I would say with bail funds, like not directly, right? Not mm -hmm. directly. And that's mm -hmm. not to say that, like, it has been you know, one of the most important projects I've ever been of in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's also mm -hmm. made it very clear that I'm like, you know, we are in Miami, Florida. Like these courts are moving so quick. Um, you know, we just lost an election in terms of our DA who is staunchly against even reform, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And those are the, that's the sort of terrain we're in. And I think for me, the challenge has been, how do you, again, offer that critique and then, try to pose an intervention so we could try to move forward when yeah. a lot of folks like actually don't want to hear that. Right. Cause like organizing is not sexy people, you know, folks want to see like the mutual aid pictures and they want to feel inspired and they want to, you know, it's so feel good. And it feels like I'm having direct impact, like all these things. And I mean, for me mm -hmm. personally, it's been challenging cause I'm like, I want to have these conversations with folks where it's like, we're, we're putting ourselves in a cycle that, none of us could sustain like even if we fundraise a bunch of money it's like you know we're competing with miami-dade county jail system yeah. like yeah. it's not happening yeah yeah no i um i know um actually saying lewis i think what they've done is take a like a carceral landscape of the city and figure out how to attack each part of it yeah. You know, how do we make sure that we run against like the DA who's in office? How do we close this jail? How do we cut bells from this second jail? How do we get this other prosecutor out of office? How we how do we also use street violence interrupters? Because if we're going to convince people that we need to close this jail, then they need to also know that we have their back if they don't feel safe. And so it's that kind of organizing. And then um Oh my gosh, Detroit Justice Center, you know, also thinking, okay, we want to prevent the building of this new jail in the county. We also need to stop people from going in. So we need to reduce the capacity of the jail, stop the prevention, stop the building of another jail, and also help people clear warrants, right? Help people make sure that they're not at risk of being arrested to the extent that that's within their control. Those sorts of projects are so inspirational. I mean, Action also is in partnership with the Bell Project in St. Louis and RCD Defenders. And so they have these networks like Miami has Community Justice Project. So you have these networks of like organizers and lawyers, you know, trying to attack all these parts of the system, which I think is so useful and has, I think, been quite rewarding. Um, when we think about some of the jail closure campaigns, some of the DA races, and then the bail funds together, I'm just also curious, are people taking a step back, like you said, and saying, okay, what's a long-term goal? Like, the long, is a long-term goal ultimately to, like, close this jail or to get rid of something, to, like, just stop the, the cycling in and out, in and out, in and out? Mm, yep. Ooh, we le we're learning slow, but we're learning. <laughs> um, 
you know, Derek, I want to thank you so much for taking time. Like I, you know, for folks that are going to be listening to this, like I've been trying to make this happen for months now and it feels delightful for us to just be in conversation and just kick it a little bit and exchange some ideas. Um, You know, I know you sort of like previewed us to a little bit of like the new projects, what's bringing you, you know, your joy, what's like, you know, feeding the soul right now. But I'm just curious, like even on the day to day right now with all of the things we just talked about, you know, (laughs) I also even feel like, sheesh, why do we always get here? (laughs) Um, how How are you keeping your head up high? You know, how are you tapping into your dignity these days? How am I tapping into my dignity? Whenever there's a challenge on social media, I record endless videos and never post them. So (laughs) the up challenge, the body challenge, what's any one of them challenges that's on Instagram, I have phones full of them. Like, so that's really nice. Um, I've been really curious about what I'm going to do with my hair now that I cut my locks off. So I'm just like all in the blogs, like, don't want to cut it all off. Don't want it. I'm trying to grow it out so I can get braids by my birthday. So that's been fun because I've had I had like like ten years, and I never have seen my natural hair. And so I'm just like, oh my god, like what's <laughs> happening? Um, playing with my kids has been really nice. I said, you know, my sisters are here. Spending time with my partner has has been really lovely because, I mean, he's a comrade and he's a funny and we like freestyle together mm. you know? but it's it that's also really lovely i really enjoyed that um therapy has been like really rewarding because it you know you think that you're dealing with a problem about the movement and then you realize it's about your childhood and you like oh <laughs> man <laughs> i didn't know this had nothing to do with my mama <laughs> 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 I thought this was about a Zoom call. <laughs> it's so much. It's so much. It's so much. Um, music has been nice. I I love music. And like I said, this research. I, is this re- recorded? So this is going to be video or just audio? Just audio. Okay, good. Because I was going to show you my bed on the floor. Like all these books over here. Wow. That's for one chapter. Like that's for one chapter. And so it's like... <laughs> Being able to read and reread and like learn and then go back and read stuff you read four or five years ago, you're just like, wow, like to see your notes. And every time I start a new book, I write like a little letter to myself. Hmm. And so I've been like rereading letters I wrote to myself. I was just like, I don't know if I believe in abolition, like reading those. Ah. It's been it's been really rewarding. So I um. Yeah, all of that stuff. The body challenges, the hair, the kids, you know, my partner and reading and like conversations like this. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So much deep gratitude for you, for your work and just like for us getting to just exist even through the madness. Right. And like still claiming our shit and still choosing another day and choosing joy in the midst of it all. But thank you. Um, Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for all your offerings. I'm very excited for this book. Not even going to ask when it's going to be ready because every time you ask, writers are like, ah. Yeah, it's supposed to be out in like October or November. So we'll see. Okay. A little fall situation. <laughs> a little fall. A little fall. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. I'm so happy we did this. Yes.